The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. Hear the word of the Lord. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we have prayed that your kingdom would come and that you would forever reign. We've sung it. We've we've prayed that you would accomplish it uh, in a kid's life in India. We've prayed that you would accomplish it in Charlottesville and here in our nation. And now, Lord, we pray that you would accomplish it in our hearts here in this moment, that you would uniquely, intimately, personally, in each of our hearts, um, take your arrow and hit your target, that you would deliver for us each exactly what we need this morning to be able to see you and to, to, to lean into you. And for that to happen, Lord, these cannot be my words, but your words, not my thoughts, but your thoughts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, about seven years ago, there was a, uh, a video on YouTube that went viral. There were these three European guys that went to Portugal to try and, and uh, pioneer this new sport that they called liquid mountaineering. The, the YouTube uh, video in, contains this description uh, in, the, in the, the description. It says, liquid mountaineering is a new sport which is attempting to achieve what man has tried to do for centuries, walking on water, or to be more precise, running on water. We are developing this sport from scratch. I want to show you a clip from it, and I want to ask you to pay very close attention because then you can do this at home and you can try it out yourself, right? So, all right. Watch this. A few people have tried it. Nobody has ever managed to get anywhere close to what we got like today. You have to believe you can do these things. It's not like impossible. There's been a few people that have been like sort of following us. It's me, my boots and I, we're going to make it. I definitely think it's going to be the next big thing. While we're still on land, we try to get up really speed. 
soon we, we touch the water, we try to get like, like a sewing machine. It's not straight into the water, you know. In a curve, in a slight curve. And by that bend, you're actually not allowing yourself to sink into the water. And you want to keep that skimming sensation going as long as you can. What gets us those extra steps are these shoes. Totally water repellent. It takes actually a lot of practice, a lot of focus. I think if you don't actually believe that you're going to walk on that water, it's not going to happen for you. All right. Did you take notes on that? Curve. You got to hit it at an angle, okay? After 4 million views uh, on YouTube, plenty of people um, uh, commenting and sending in emails to these guys and saying, what am I doing wrong? I can only get five steps. You're getting 10. Uh, the shoe company, High Tech, decided that they'd gotten enough mileage from the video to then tell everybody that it was actually a hoax. It was meant to be a uh, viral ad for the shoes. That's what they were doing. They actually had a platform just barely under the water. They filmed it at an angle so that you couldn't see that. The platform had a bit of a move to it so that it looked, uh, it, it, it looked natural. Their, um, their, their catch, their joke was, our water-repellent shoes are so water-repellent that, you know, you should be able to walk on water. Um, so that's how they did it. But I want to ask you guys, how many of you, for just 30 seconds, you believed it? You believed it really? Put your hands up. I'm curious. I had a lot go up at first service. Okay, good. I got Chris Gregory on it. Good. Okay, good. <clears throat> How many of you wanted to believe that it was true? You want, yeah, you're like, wow, I, that, we have just hit the next extreme sport, right? So, guys, um, <laughs> we know better, most of us, right? We know better. We know it's, it's far simpler to explain what you just saw when you can see the diagrams there and you realize what they actually did, right? When we know that it's a hoax, because we know that people don't run on water. We know that people don't walk on water. Maybe everything in you wanted to believe, but we know rationally there's no way that they really did that, right? But here's the problem. Two centuries ago, there were a bunch of liberal theologians that applied that same tactic, those same assumptions, not to a YouTube video, but to the biblical text here. They said, we know that people don't walk on water. We know better than that. So we need a rational explanation. And so they said, well, Jesus was walking on shore probably, and the guys in the storm didn't realize how close they were to the shore, right? So they were surprised when they saw him. Or Jesus was walking out onto a sandbar. Of course, these guys are seasoned fishermen, and wow, they didn't know the sandbar was there. Um, Jesus knew where the rocks were, so he was stepping very carefully out onto those. One, this is a Discovery Channel video. They actually suggested that it was a freak ice storm. That um, it only happens once every 161 years, but uh, it happened then. It froze, and uh, apparently it didn't affect the boat, but Jesus was able to walk out on the ice. Or maybe Jesus was wearing high-tech shoes, right? Um, <clears throat> any of these, uh, actually all of these except the shoe comment, um, have been trotted out by scholars who want to call themselves legitimate, uh, who say that there's got to be some other explanation than the actual story here because Jesus couldn't possibly have walked on water because people don't walk on water, right? Good for you being suspicious about liquid mountaineering. I'm grateful for that, right? But when we're talking about Jesus, that lack of faith requires a lot of faith. 
this story is meant to be historically straightforward. It's meant to show us something about the reality of who Jesus is. And if he is who he said he is, and it would make sense that he would do this kind of thing. If you're here this morning and this, you're, you're, you tend to be skeptical by nature, you're not sure about this whole Bible thing, and you're certainly not sure about this story, <clears throat> this story sounds logically ludicrous to you, I think it would help for you to know that it was ludicrous to the guys who saw it as well. It was absolutely ludicrous to them. It absolutely freaked them out. The best translation I found of their reaction is in the New King James Version. It says, they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Um, The NIV says, they were greatly amazed, right? The Greek could say, exceedingly, excessively, each of them amazed. They ran out of adverbs to describe what they saw. So whether you're a skeptic on this or not, I just want to be clear. Um, I'm preaching this this morning as something that really happened. Something that is as real as you sitting here this morning. In fact, more real than that. And the reason I say that is because C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce, when he's talking about Jesus walking through that wall after the resurrection, he said he was able to walk through the wall because he was more real than the wall. (laughs) Jesus is more real than this water. We need a real story for real problems. There's only a weight to this story if it really happened. We need a real story for real problems if we're going to experience real comfort. So for the next few moments, I want you you to ask yourself, if this really happened, what does it tell me? And I'm sure we could say lots of things. In fact, plenty of things that, for time's sake, did not make it into the sermon. But here are three things that, that did. It tells us this, that Jesus put you in the boat, that Jesus walks alongside your boat, and that Jesus gets in your boat. And if you're taking notes, I thought it would be helpful just to put those three words next to it. Because that's really what we're talking about here. Point one is about his sovereignty. Number two is about his authority. And the third one is about his mercy. Jesus puts you in the boat, walks alongside your boat, gets in your boat. Let me talk about that first one. Jesus, and this is the one I think it would be easy for us to just skim right past. Jesus put you in the boat. Verse 45 said... Remember that he's just fed the 5,000 and it says immediately, so it's connecting it direct. This is what happened exactly right after the passage that Heath preached on last week, right? Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And there's something urgent in this word, in this verb. It says that uh, he forced them into the boat. Like he compelled them by force, Physically or argumentatively, he compelled them post-haste into the boat. There's something urgent about it. And we don't know from this passage why it's such an urgent thing, but we do when we look at the parallel passage in John. Because it says, Jesus, knowing that they, the 5,000, intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This crowd of 5,000 just men, so this this crowd could be 10 or 15,000, right? Um is more than ready to crown him king. Not the king that he's supposed, that he rightly deserves, not the king of the universe, not, not the Messiah, but just a king, a political king that would drive the Romans out because they're impressed by him. And Jesus knows that this atmosphere is contagious enough that the 12 would be more than ambitious enough to go along with it. And so he is protecting them. He forcibly puts them into the boat. And now it's the middle of the night, we find out. The wind is up. The disciples have not gotten past the the middle of the lake. Um, The last time we saw them in a storm was back in chapter 4. You remember Tim preached on that. Uh, Jesus was asleep in the boat. 
and it said that they feared for their lives. This time it doesn't say that they're afraid of the weather. Doesn't mean they're not afraid, but they're not afraid of the weather. This isn't, um, this isn't life-threatening. It's just really aggravating, right? They're, it's, they're frustrated. <clears throat> it's been, if we do the math about when it says that Jesus came to them and how long they've been going and how wide the lake is, we know that they've been going for potentially eight hours and they've barely gone three miles. So it's very frustrating for them. <clears throat> it says that they're straining at the oars. You could translate that word tortured. The rowing is torture for them right now. They're not getting anywhere. And at some point, you've got to imagine one of, the, one of these 12 saying, how in the world did we end up here? And the answer is, Jesus put you there. I mean, Jesus, he shoved you off himself and he waved from the dock, right? He's the one that put you there. <clears throat> now, in this story, we can see the reason because we see John 6. This physical storm is removing them from a greater spiritual storm. Jesus knew that this storm, this physical one, wasn't half as dangerous as it would be if the disciples' imaginations got to running wild with the crowd and missing the whole point of who Jesus was. But when it's your boat, when you're in the boat, we don't usually get scriptural explanations as to exactly why you're having to go through what you're going through. We don't get those easy explanations. Where in your life, let me use this illustration, this picture, just so you can kind of get yourself there. Where in your life do you feel like you're rowing and you're rowing and you're rowing and you're not getting anywhere? One step forward, two steps back. Might be your finances. Maybe you're, you're that close to being Dave Ramsey debt-free and then the, the air conditioning unit goes out. The roof needs replacing. It might be your health. Uh, maybe the doctors have tried all kinds of different things and now you're sitting in the office and they say, well, you know, none of that really worked and we're kind of back to square one. Or just when you're getting healthy in one area, you slip and fall and you're hurting in another area. It might be your marriage. You're investing time and effort into this, but no matter how much you're putting into it through counseling and time and all the rest, you just feel like it's not being reciprocated from your spouse. It might be your job. Maybe you thought you would be further ahead in your career by now, but setbacks have kept you stalled out. Uh, it might be a sin pattern that you're trapped in. You just feel like you cannot get enough traction to make forward progress in that area and to choose a different path, and so you keep falling into the same hole. It could be any number of things. I just want you to imagine that place in your life where you're doing this. You're, just, you're running to stand still. You're, you're, you're trapped in the wheel. The rowing is torture. Uh, we can easily, in that moment, we can feel the absence of Jesus, Right? Remember that in this passage, Jesus isn't just asleep in the boat like he was in Tim's passage. He's not even in the boat at all here. So it is, we can assume that we're on our own. Or we can take the confident testimony of Scripture that Jesus isn't just aware, he's not just watching from the beach, but that he's, as Colossians 1 says, that he's the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, right? That he's the one that's sovereign over all of it. He's the, he's the author of your story. If you were here uh, for Tim's sermon, you remember him saying something to the effect that a, a storm is a fork in the road. And I, I recognize I just mixed metaphors. I'm going to keep doing it. Just deal with it, right? So uh, it's a fork in the road, in the river, in the sea, and there's a fork in it. But <clears throat> when our life experiences a storm, we tend to go, it's hard for us to play the middle. It's really hard to straddle the fence. We tend to move in one of two directions, right? We tend to either be so repulsed by God as to say, how could he let this happen to me? 
Or we tend to be more drawn to God. That's many of your testimonies, I know, right? The same difficulty that pushes some people away from God draws other people to him. It's a fork in the road, right? Some people lose faith and some people find it. That means that hardship, storms, are not evidence of the absence of God because just as many people find him in the storm as lose him in the storm. I can think of people that have left, in fact, that have left this church because they're so angry at God that God would have allowed their parent to die. And yet, there's others of you that are in here that you would say that it was your parents' death that actually awoke you to what the gospel was all about. Just as many people in the storm lose him as find him. When you're in the storm, you've got those two choices. You can either say, Jesus' hands off. I'm on my own here. Paddle, paddle, paddle. Swim, swim, swim. Or you can say, Jesus is so hands-on here that his work in me includes this very thing that I'm going through right now that he's in charge of. I recognize, and I know some of your stories, I recognize that that is a hard reality. It's hard to say, Jesus authored this? And I recognize that that might be a, uh, there might be further conversation needed, a pastoral, uh, some, some pastoral prayer and, and some opportunity to talk about what does it look like to know that Jesus is authoritative over your situation, right? Yeah, I know that it gets personal. I know that's a hard reality. But let me say this. If Jesus isn't sovereign over your storm, you have a much bigger problem, don't you? You've got a God who would love to help you. He just can't. He's got the whole world in his hands except for you, Right? If God's not in control, then who is? Satan? No one? You? That's funny. When you come to God and say, Lord, I feel totally out of control, I think the still small voice says, bingo. You were never in control to begin with. But trusting God's sovereignty in your storm means in the midst of my mess, I've got to believe that I'm still here with God's full intention, I'm still here with God's full knowledge, and I'm still here with God's full care. I'm going to come back to that idea in a minute, but the the story doesn't leave us there. It doesn't just, um, yes, Jesus puts you in the boat, but he doesn't just leave you there. Secondly, Jesus walks alongside your boat. Verse 48, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, and when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Notice I, I said before, they weren't terrified of the weather, but I didn't say that they weren't terrified. It's just now they're terrified of him, not the storm. I want to ask two why questions about that, that section right there. Uh, the first one's just interesting to me. The, the second one is pretty essential. Uh, here's the interesting one. Um, <clears throat> why does it say that Jesus was about to pass by them. Doesn't that strike you as odd? I mean, he knows that there, it says that he saw them from the shore and he went out to them. So he's going to help them. So is he, is he playing a trick on them? Is he acting like he doesn't see them? He's, oh, fancy meeting you here. I was just going out for my morning walk. And uh, what are you guys doing out here? There are several theories as to what is going on here in this passage in the Greek and all that, but I think it's best, the simplest, just to read it from the disciples' point of view. Remember, this is Peter telling Mark, telling us. This is an eyewitness account, and it's kind of like this. He's saying, we, are ma- we were making no forward progress, and then we were rowing like crazy, and Jesus just comes up to us and walks by us like we were standing still. He could have just passed us. Right? It's like when you're stuck in traffic and you look at the pedestrians on the sidewalk and they're going faster than you are. Right? 
effortless. That's what, it's, that's what I think is going on here. They're saying he, he's making all of our torturous rowing look silly because he is just walking by so effortlessly. He could have just blown our doors off. But instead he stops, right? So the more important question is this. Why is Jesus walking on water? Have you ever thought of this? Just if, if his goal was to impress the disciples, he's got a lot of options. He's God, right? Could have flown to them. Could have beamed over to them. He could have jumped to them, right? Could have ridden over on a fish. I mean, there's all kinds of things he could have done, right? He's Jesus, right? He's definitely got options. But he chooses to walk, to just stroll out there. Because in the Old Testament, there's only one that walks on water. Job 9. and says this. He alone stretches out the heavens. This is talking about God. He treads on the waves of the sea. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, same word, by the way, there, when he passes by, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. The context in that passage is talking about the awesome separation between God and man, between who God is and who we are. And it says only God can tread the ways of the sea. This is a familiar passage to to every good Jew. And the sea at that time represented more than just water. I think you know this. It represented something untamable. It represented chaos. It represented destruction, right? And so it's more than just a cool party trick that Jesus is doing here. He is demonstrating his absolute order over the chaos. He's demonstrating his absolute order casually over the world, over the disorder of the world. He's the one that keeps evil on a short leash. And here in this passage, we see that Jesus walks where God walks. He's showing them his deity. He's reminding them of of everything that they know of God passing by in in Exodus when he passed by Moses or in in Elijah when he, he passed by with a still small voice. He's showing all of that, right? He walks where God walks. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus rules over the disorder and the chaos of our storms. He's the one who keeps evil on a short leash. Sure, Jesus could have, he could have swam over, <laughs> could have surfed over, he could have spider-manned over, he could have done all kinds of things to get to the disciples, but instead, he walked. Because none of that other stuff would have shown what is meant to be shown here, that he is stepping where only God steps, he's treading the ways, he's keeping chaos calmly under his feet as he walks. Jesus is drawing close to you. He's getting proximate there. He doesn't just push you from the dock into your storm and then wave to you from the shore so that you can fend for yourself. He walks beside you through the storm and he brings the fullness of his deity into your situation. He's the Lord of all creation. He's the Lord of your storm. He has authority over all of it. I like this story Robert Louis Stevenson tells. Uh, He was on a ship in a storm uh, merchant ship. Uh, They're heading towards a rocky coast, apparently, and um, strong winds, heaving waves, uh, heavy rain. And in the midst of all of this, the passengers, they're all down in the hold, just huddled up. But one of the passengers wants to know, how are we doing? So he, he actually works his way out of the hold, and he works his way across this deck that's rocking back and forth through the rain and the waves and, and uh, the wind and, and all of that. And he gets within sight of the wheel of the ship so that he can actually see the pilot of the ship. And through these flashes of lightning, uh, he sees the pilot, and the pilot looks, and he looks at him nonchalantly, 
smiles, winks. The passenger works his way back down into the hold and he says to the rest of the gang, he says, I have seen the face of the pilot and he smiled at me. All is well. See, in your storm, when when all you can see is wind and waves and the tortured rowing and and all of the rest, you've got got to look to him. Uh, He's got this. I've seen the face of the pilot and he smiled at me. In fact, I've seen the face of the pilot and he's walking laps around the boat right now. All is well. He's got this. But even better, last point, he's climbing into the boat. Not just walking alongside, but Jesus gets in your boat. Verse 50 says, immediately he spoke to them and he said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Let me stop right there for just a moment. Take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. In, the, in, in our storms, we get this awesome comfort that Jesus says, I've authored this thing, I have authority over this thing, and I'm right here with you during this thing. Oh, no, I ask you to picture that place where you're just in the hamster wheel, right? You're stuck, you're running to stand still. I want you to imagine, what would it look like in that scene of you rowing and rowing for Jesus to step in and say that? To say, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. As you're getting your MRI, as you're going through your chemo, as you're at the, the office, as the, 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 you're foreclosing on your house, as you're um, having your performance review. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. <clears throat> Could be whatever it is, financial, medical, vocational, whatever it was, what does it do to hear, to hear that voice of Jesus in that situation, right? That is a great comfort. Do you feel it? I mean, what, 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 was that, what does that do to you to know that he's there? But there is a greater, much greater comfort than that in this passage. He's committed to drawing near. He's committed to being with you through the mess that you're in. But the greater comfort is not just that he steps into the storm. What is the stormiest, scariest part of that passage, verses 50 to 52? I'm going to read the rest of it. It says, Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. What is the scariest, stormiest part of that passage? After all of this, feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, the disciples, it says, didn't get it because their hearts were hardened. That's not a minor comment. That is a new development and a scary development. If there was a soundtrack to this, you would hear the music kind of shift into a minor key right here and run for the rest of the book. That's a revelation of where these guys stand in relation to Jesus. They are right next to him physically. Physically, they're right with him in the boat. Spiritually, their hearts are far from him. They don't understand who he is. They would be happy, just like the 5,000, to make a military political king out of him. And we know, because we know the story, that it's going to get worse before it gets better for them. Up to this point in Mark, we've seen the disciples as kind of privileged tagalongs for Jesus' travels. They get to see a lot of cool things. But right here, there's a new strain of music they do not understand because their hearts are hard. Folks, that's how the Bible describes the Pharisees, um, Jesus' opponents, wayward Israel. That's how the, the Bible describes Pharaoh. This is not the team you want to be on if you're the disciples, right? There is no worse diagnosis 
than the diagnosis of a hard heart. There is no worse storm than the storm that keeps you from God. We need help from the outside. We can't do this. We can't give ourselves a heart transplant, and yet something's got to change here. The disciples need a complete change of heart. So do we. Here's the good news. That's what Jesus came for. He came to be that thing, that one external to us that would move us from our unbelief to faith. This is the real storm. Let me describe this here. From Jeremiah, it's in chapter 23 and chapter 30. Here it is in chapter 30, same thing. It says, See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. That's the storm we deserve. This is the storm that Jesus walks through in our place, right? That's the storm where Jesus climbs into the boat and takes our place. And maybe you say, no, Kevin, you've got that wrong because that's talking about the wicked. That's not me. That's those people out there. That's white supremacists and North Korea and ISIS, right? Let me ask you guys, if you, I was thinking about this this morning. If, if I were in Charlottesville right now, would I bring the best that the kingdom, the counterculture has to offer from the gospel, or would I just yell back? See, Heath said this yet last week. He said, you can't, the Bible does not allow you to say the bad people are out there and we're the good people in here. He said that that's a line that goes through the heart, the hardened heart of every single one of us, right? All of us battle the sin of hard-heartedness and, and unbelief. In fact, what do you have to do to clay for it to harden? I'll ask you this way. Parents, what do you have to do to Play-Doh for it to harden? Leave the lid off, leave it exposed. Um, hypothetically, it ends up in your daughter's carpet, you know, just things like that, right? So what do you have to do for it to harden? Nothing. In fact, the book of Hebrews sounds the warning call in triplicate. It says, your Hebrews, Christians, do not drift, dull, or harden. What do you have to do for something to harden? Nothing. It'll harden all by itself. What do you have to do for a boat to drift? Nothing. Just don't do anything and you are sure to drift, right? What do you have to do for a knife to get dull? Nothing. Just use it, but don't take care of it. It will dull all by itself. What do you have to do for all of these things? Nothing. In all of the places where you, we fail to tend our souls, nothing. We should expect a hard-heartedness. Do you feel it? It ebbs and flows regularly in me. I'm sure it does in you. We should expect a a hard-heartedness. We should expect a a lessening God reliance. We should expect some pull ourselves up by our bootstraps efforts to do these things on our own strength and on our own wisdom. But for the Christian, we recognize that uh, the storm we deserve is the storm that Jesus stepped into. Right? He stands in our place in the eye of the storm. He stands there for all of our hard-heartedness. And he says, let my heart, God, count for his, count for hers. Let my heart stand in the place of that heart. And then by his grace, he softens our heart to conform it more and more to the image of Christ. We know that, I mean, that passage and many more say that there is a final judgment one day and that we will be called to account for all of our hard-heartedness. But the good news is that Jesus on the cross weathered the storm of our unbelief. Weathered the storm of that judgment. 
Jesus on the cross conquered the, the hard-heartedness uh, of, our, of our own mess and gave us, he gave us a heart transplant, right? What I'm trying to say is this, and I hope, I hope this is all, I don't know if this is coming together for you guys or not, so let me just try and give it an image, okay? What I'm trying to say is this. If Jesus can conquer our worst storm, there it is, exhibit A, that's it. Nothing worse could happen to me than to be hard-heartedly, eternally separated from him. If Jesus can conquer that worst storm, then he's qualified to conquer the other ones too. Right? And so to bring it full circle, think about those other ones for a minute. Think about, go back to those, that situation, those situations that um, your mind went to when I asked, you know, where do you feel like you're, you're, you're straining at the oars, you're tortured rowing, you're throwing whatever metaphor there, you're running in the hamster wheel, you're, you know, whatever that is, Right? that place where you would desperately love for Jesus to just walk on water right into that scene and fix it. No doubt, whatever that scene is that comes to mind for you, it's a tough place, no doubt. But as Christians, we start here. God has given us a heart transplant. God has given us a new heart. He removed, it says in Ezekiel 36, he's removed our heart of stone. He's given us a heart of flesh. And if I had to choose a trouble-free life and a dead heart or a heart aflame for him so that it has faith to weather the challenges that come my way, I would, it's a no-brainer, I would take the latter. Because he's taking care of the biggest storm already. I mean, folks, death cannot threaten you. Death has lost its sting. Satan has no hold on you. You've been set free. Those are the things that the Christian grabs a hold of and says, this is what he's already done for me, right? It says in Romans 8, if God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with that, freely give us all things? It means that if I can trust him for that, I can trust him for anything. If he's got the big one covered, I can take the little ones. And I don't mean, to, I don't mean that tritely. I know they're big things. But if he's got the biggest one covered, I can take everything else to him. I can say, you, you've got me here too. You've got this. You're the one in charge of it. You're in the boat with me. You're the one that got me here. I'm putting all my trust. I've seen the face of the Savior and he smiled at me. He winked at me. He's walking laps around the boat in my storm. All is well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would enliven us with the truth of that heart transplant. We know that you've got that covered. You've, you've conquered the biggest thing that could conquer us. You've done it. And I pray, Lord, that you would make this church and even the week ahead um, a wonderful place of post-operative care. You've given us a new organ. Uh, you've given us a transplant. Now we want to learn how to live with that new organ and we want to um, lean into that, Lord, so that we would be different. Not just that you would take Jesus' heart and, and let it stand for ours, but that you would take our heart and conform it more and more to the image of Christ that, that we would start to reflect him more in the way that we, we live and that we would look more like you. Father, that, that, would, that would make us joyous and giddy 
even as we give our tithes and offerings and as we head into our week of, of storm, uh, that we would know, Lord, because you've got the big one, you've got this one too. And so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.